We are in a series just now uh, called Restore in 2024. And I believe that was a prophetic word that was actually given to me about God's church and its mission for this city and some of the challenges that we will face before us. We've also talked about in order to actually walk through the open doors that God is presenting before us, we need to close some doors behind us. You see, any time that God calls you to, to build, to rebuild, or to restore something for His glory, to advance the kingdom, it will always involve change, every single time. And sometimes change is not only inconvenient at times, but you can find, you know, change to be uncomfortable. The end goal is meant to be good and joyous, but the journey to get there can sometimes have its twists and its turns. And the reason being is that you have a spiritual enemy, and your spiritual enemy will do anything that he can to thwart you from fulfilling God's purposes in your life. We've been studying Nehemiah because Nehemiah is a good study to how to navigate these kind of hurdles as not only people of God, but also as leaders in God's church. And so far, what we've covered is we have seen how Nehemiah actually personally allowed himself to be affected by the news that the city's walls still lay in ruins after many, many years, and that God's people were being constantly raided and attacked and were just totally vulnerable. Nehemiah responded by weeping. He wept and he prayed and he fasted, but he also planned he then risked everything. He actually risked his life by stepping out in faith to approach the king, you know, to ask for some help. And as he did, what you find is that the Lord's favor was actually upon him. Resourced by the king, he then goes to Jerusalem, and instead of just rushing in, you know, he surveys, he takes his time and sees what actually needs to be done. He then organizes people by, you know, pulling them together as a community with a purpose and they willingly all take part in doing their little bit. He does it in such a way that the people are not overwhelmed by the enormity of the, the task, but they are focused on the next thing that's immediately in front of them. It's how to eat an elephant principle. How do you eat an elephant? One bite, One bite at a time. That's the principle. I can't think of anything more disgusting than to eat an elephant, by the way. But what you find then, as soon as the walls start to go up, the enemy tries to pull the people down. You see, I said every vision will lead to collision. And we learned how Nehemiah and his people, they actually overcame opposition in the form of discouragement from out with them. Do you know, we also learned that the enemy, if he can't discourage you, you know, from out with, he will quickly create problems within the people of God. And you will face opposition and discouragement then from within Nehemiah has to therefore confront his own people and address some social issues, you know, in the Scriptures there. And because he didn't shy away from that confrontation, he solves the issues and the community are united once again towards this task. But again, we have an enemy who prowls about, like the Scripture says, like a roaring lion. And if those tactics don't work, he often switches to another to cause us to be distracted as a people. Now, guys, I would say to you, there has never been more things in the history of the world to distract God's people from the calling and task before us today to restore in 2024. And one of the powerful messages that we find, you know, in Nehemiah is how much you can actually accomplish when you align yourself with the will as well as the plan of God. Nehemiah came and he helped these people to rebuild in 52 days, which others couldn't have done in a lifetime. 
But with the Holy Spirit, they could do it in under two months. Isn't that amazing? They could do it in under two months because of the Holy Spirit. And remember the, Nehemi the name Nehemiah, what does it mean? It means comforter. Another name for the Holy Spirit. It's a picture almost of a, of a partnership with the Spirit of God that actually enables us to get things done in us that we can never do in and of ourselves. We could never do it on our own. And that really, if you think about it, is a prophetic picture of the story behind the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah and his followers did what seemed to be impossible because they are actually doing what God has actually called them to do. And that changes everything. And the changes that we as a church are embarking upon as a church, which I talked about two weeks ago, do you know, it's an enormous task, to be quite honest with you, which we will only be able to actually do by being obedient and open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 6, you find that the wall's rebuilt, and that's what we finished off, you know, with. and it'd be really nice, to be quite honest with you, if it ended there and it said, and they all lived happily after. But that wasn't the story because there's six more chapters left to look at. And what we find is Nehemiah, you know, moving from the building project itself to steps that will ensure that what has actually been built will be protected as well as preserved. Which brings us to chapters 7 and chapters 8. Now, chapter 7 is really basically an extensive list of people's names in it. I think from verse, you know, 6 to the end, you know, it's almost all names. Do you know, and uh, there's three significant points that we can take from chapter 7. And what I want to do is just skim over them so that we can spend the most of our time looking at chapter 8. Now, a guy called Warren, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is it Wisebury? Wisebur? Weird name. Okay, <laughs> I'll go with that. <laughs> he says this, every Christian ministry is one short generation away from destruction. And God's people must be on their guard because you do have an enemy. And do you know what, guys? We are at war. We are at war. We've got a spiritual enemy that wars against us. But the good news is, we've got the victory. We've got the victory. Amen? Amen. Is anyone happy about that? Yeah. Amen. The point is, the work that Nehemiah is beginning now is every single bit as important as the building project was so far. What he's going to do now is just as important as building those walls. See, God doesn't just want us to build things. He wants us to also preserve and protect them as well. And here's the first thing we learn from chapter 7, which I'm skimming over. Protecting what God has given requires godly leaders. It really does. Do you know, I've sat with pastors and leaders in our own movement, out with our own movement, who have taken their foot off the pedal of things of the Spirit. And they haven't protected the momentum or the DNA that the Holy Spirit inspired them with or started it with. And as a result, encounters with the Holy Spirit and signs, wonders, miracles are almost non-existent as the, you know, the Holy Spirit is pushed to the margins. And all they have left now is basically a theology of the kingdom, but in practice, they're functional cessationists. And that's sad. I mean, I wish I had time to unpack this statement a little bit more, but the gospel without power is not good news. Let me say that again. The gospel without power is not good news. It's why, like last week, I will always follow the Holy Spirit's leading and making room for Him, regardless, regardless. It is important to note that one of the first things that happens, do you know, in this section, you know, the story of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah chooses key people to lead. In fact, in verse 7, it says this, 
Now, when the wall was rebuilt and I had installed the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, I put Hananiah, my brother, and Hanani, the commander of the citadel in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Hananiah, do you know, was made the, the civil leader, you know, of Jerusalem, whilst Hananiah, do you know, was made the military leader over the city's defenses. He chose God-fearing people, you know, amongst them. Do you know, God has done a lot of good things, a lot of great things in this church and through this church. And to protect, you know, and build on what we have already started, we need to develop more small group leaders. We need to develop more ministry leaders, you know, that are open to the Holy Spirit. So I, guys, or your small group leaders may be asking some of you in larger groups to step up to lead, to step up the plate to bat, you know, to help us to multiply by creating more groups for those who God is going to bring towards us and join us. We need to start, you know, getting ready and preserving the momentum that God has actually started here. Here's the second thing we learn from chapter 7. Protecting what God has given requires an emphasis on people. This is the second chapter, do you know, out of seven chapters so far that primarily has big lists of people's names in it. So from verse 7 to actually verse 64 is an extensive list which we don't have time to read through of who and how, you know, contributed to this project. That needs to tell us something about ministry and especially about this preserving work that Nehemiah is now moving into. So what can we learn from this list? Well, one of the key lessons that we can actually learn from this chapter is that people are really important. People are important to God. See, when God wanted to take the next step in his great plan of redemption, he called a group of Jews to leave the place of exile and return to their own land. He gave them an encouragement from prophets and leadership from people who feared God and, you know, honored them. He used common people, every single day people who were willing to risk their reputations, their futures on the promises of God. And that's what he's doing with this church today. That's what he's doing with our church today. We've had encouragements from our prophetically gifted people in this church. Your leadership who fear God more than they fear man, you know, are leading us forward in this season. I'm talking about all of our leaders. When we stand before the Lord, we will have to give an accounting of our lives before we receive a reward. That's what the Scripture teaches. And we want to be able to give a good account, don't we? One or two of you do. What about this side? We want to give a good account, don't we? I love interaction, as you can maybe have guessed. So, a clear emphasis on this chapter is that ministry is not about bricks and mortar. Ministry is about people. Ministry is about people. It's about following the leading of the Holy Spirit, no matter how uncomfortable it gets as well. So we think, when we're thinking about purchasing and restoring, you know, a building, we must never forget that. It's about following the, the Holy Spirit, and it's about, you know, people. And here's the last thing. Protecting what God has given requires financial sacrifice. Some of the heads of the father's household gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand gold drachma, 50 basins, and 53 priests' garments. And some of the heads of father's households gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 gold drachma and 2,200 silver minas. What the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priests' garments. Guys, throughout history, God has ordained that his work would be financed by his people. 
And we show how concerned we are about protecting what God has given us by being generous, by our generosity. John Scott gave us a, a confirming prophetic word a couple of weeks ago about us getting ready for what God wants to do in us and through us and how that involved us doing things differently. Other prophetic voices in this church have actually said the exact same. This was confirming all the things that God's been speaking to us. And as we started to respond, we've seen breakthroughs. You just heard some of them this morning. The Holy Spirit is manifesting and we're seeing increase and an opportunity to buy a home that we can invite people into. When I or one of your directors, you know, and our directors are Grace Fowler. Grace, where are you? There's Grace up the back. Andy Beveridge, who's not in here just now, uh, with it. Myself, uh, Keith Willis, if you remember, you know, Keith, anyone? And Maury Stewart, where's Maury? There's Maury over there. That's your directors in there. So when one of us, you know, talk about giving, we're not just talking about giving financially to a building. Please hear that. What we're talking about is giving towards the future. Giving towards the future, towards ministry, which includes a building that will actually enable us to invest more in our children, and the youth, and our families, and our students, and single people, and married people, and so much, much more. You know, some of which I listed in your brochure that I handed out two weeks ago. And guys, if you never got one, we have some here today. You can pick that up and read, excuse me, about what we're trying to achieve. But in order to achieve this, it's going to require all of us to contribute something, as was the case in Nehemiah chapter 7. And as we are led by the Holy Spirit, you will see him do this. He will use the church to build people versus people to build the church. That's God's job. I will build my church, not we will build his church. What we're called to do is build people eh, with that. It will also make disciples versus just people making decisions. What we'll find is problem solved rather than problems ignored. And what you'll find is that it requires and demands careful use of finances versus unreasonable uses of finances as well. So as we move towards this, as we are led by the Holy Spirit, you will find these changes. So I want to spend the rest of my time just basically looking at a verse from chapter 8. Seems to me, and I don't know about you guys, but everybody's looking for joy. Could anyone do with some joy this morning? Okay, five of you. Okay. But it seems that everybody's looking for it. You know, marketing companies remind us of this and they recognize this, you know. All you have to do is watch some of the adverts that you see on your TV. I mean, every advert promises the same product that, and that product is joy. That's what they're, they're promising you. So, you want some joy? Come and buy our shampoo because you're worth it. You're so worth it. Want some joy? Buy this car. Want some joy? You know, buy our holiday. And every advert basically portrays an image of joy, a joy-filled person. Everybody wants it, but here's my question. Can everybody deliver it? Can they deliver it? You might be surprised that joy is actually a major topic in the Bible. And it's present in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. It says, this day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And even after the wall was built, Nehemiah has a problem. You see, the people have lost their joy. They've lost their joy. The scenario is, is the walls are built up, but the people are broken down. The wall is high, but the people find that they've got low self-esteem. So Nehemiah shifts his attention from building of the edifice to the edification of the people. That's what he does. He gives them a word of encouragement and says to them, you need to have joy because the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So my tagline for this message is the joy of the Lord, the strength to restore. I believe that Nehemiah's message is a message for someone here today. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do it with the biggest smile you can muster. Okay? It is. To rephrase this, the Lord intends for His joy, His joy, to become our joy. That's what He intends. That's what I want you to hear in this message. His joy is to become your joy. Now, in chapter 8, they found the Scriptures had been lost, but they find them. They find them. So, they assemble the people by the water gate to hear the Scriptures being read, for some of them, the first time ever in their lives. Can you imagine that there's actually something like 42,000 people, young and old, standing there with their children for five to six hours while the Scriptures is read? They're reading the Scriptures, and the priests are running out amongst the crowd, you know, they're explaining what's been read, probably translating it from Aramaic into Hebrew. So, you can imagine the scene. They read a bit of the Scripture, then they pause. The priests would then run out, you know, they would talk to this group, to that group, you know, so that, and explain it so that everybody could understand so we're going to pick this up at verse 6 in chapter 8, where everyone is standing in this almost pregnant moment here in the Scripture. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all people answered, Amen, Amen, with the raising of their hands, and they kneeled down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, and here we go, the names, okay, forgive me, Jeshua, Benaiah, Serabiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Masaniah, Kelita, Azra, Joabaz, Hanan, Pelitha, and the Levites. I never thought I'd get that done. Thank you. <laughs> and they explained the law to the people, and the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give you know, the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Now, here's the big picture. Imagine you've never heard the Scriptures before. I mean, maybe you've heard some one-liners, you know, you've heard that, or statements or concepts that's been made by someone but you've never actually heard the Word of God. You've never heard it read to you, and you've never had it explained to you. And all of a sudden, you realize that up here is kind of God's standard, but our life's, our present reality is way, way, way down here. And that gap, that gap was causing the people to mourn. That gap was causing the people to, to weep. They were so overwhelmed by the distance between these two realities that they began to cry ugly crying. Okay, this wasn't just a boo-hoo. This was ugly crying. They wept and wept and wept. Guys, this is an evangelist dream where you read the Scriptures. Everybody's already weeping before you even preach and ready to make a decision, you know, here. And the Holy Spirit speaks to the leaders and tells them, guys, go tell them to stop crying. And you might go, well, Why? Why wouldn't you, you kind of realize that? I mean, because this day is holy. This day is holy. Now, reading and looking at that instruction, I felt kind of conflicted when I read that. Because the church that I came to faith in, I was taught that holy... Is that me? I was taught... <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I was taught that... that, that... <laughs> Okay, 
I was actually taught that, you know, holiness was when you realized that you could sin in your life and you mourn over it. And that's right. That is actually, that's, pro that's proper. Do you know, for that? I believe that's still true today. But there is a, a God moment here for the nation of Israel that redefines how he works in this thing called grace. This thing called grace. I think there's many instances or glimpses of God's grace in the Old Testament. I think this is one of them that we're actually looking at. So they run amongst the people and they say, stop weeping, stop weeping. They go, oh, I will be, this day's a holy day, so stop mourning and stop crying. And then it goes on with one step further in verse 10. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let me put it my terms. It's almost as though these men of God are declaring to the people of God, guys, you are in a place just now where you need incredible strength. You need incredible strength, but you're not going to get that strength through your morning. Morning will only take you so far here. You will have to experience undeserved, grace-filled joy so that you can step into that which you could not do or earn for yourself or to, to understand. You know, the, the fact is the grace that I'm offering you in this joy will actually empower you from this day on to what I'm going to lead you into. See, much of Christian culture in the West I would say the Western world is a kind of meism. It's about me. So much of it is focused on our individual walk, our individual experience, that there are aspects of which is good and that, you know, i.e., we all have to have a personal individual relationship with God, so that is an individual thing. But he's a father, he's not our second distant cousin. You know, each one of us has to have a moment where we surrender to Christ just one-on-one. -on -one. That's, that's theological, that's the way we come to salvation. But at the same time, we are also made members of a body. Of a body, we are part of a, an us. And that is more than what we could ever become or achieve in and of ourselves. We are part of a much bigger picture, like painted by numbers. Together we make a better, bigger picture. There's a corporate expression that I think we in the West have missed, or I think we in the West have actually forgotten, and it's found in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 16, verses 4 to 28. I don't have time to read it, but it's, we find David showing us this kind of principle here. It's like when he goes to the Levites and he's like, okay guys, you guys are responsible to come into the tabernacle and what we want you to do is we want you to worship from say 3 a.m. To, to 4 a.m. That's your shift and your assignment is, guys, guess what? You just to give thanks. Now my imaginary dialogue, David going and saying that to Levites, I can imagine him going, do you know, sing to give thanks. I thought thankfulness was when you, do you know, something that you did when you had a thankful heart. Do you know, but Dave's like, no, 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 you just got to give thanks. Yeah, 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 but shouldn't we just cultivate a thankful heart first, David, before we actually do that? No, no, you can just obey. You obey your way into giving a thankful heart. Just, just give thanks, guys. Do you know, it's part of the gospel that is often overlooked, I think, in Western culture, where we think it's primarily about my call, my ministry, my assignment. Instead of realizing that there is a corporate expression that needs to be necessary. And sometimes the greatest way to personal liberty is just saying yes to the corporate expression. 
You assigned guys, go give thanks. Well, what should I give thanks for? I don't care, just, just make a list. Find something that you can be thankful for. Well, I thank you that you brought our forefathers uh, out of captivity and uh, into the promised land. Thank you. Sounds solid, doesn't it? Sounds empty. But guess what? When you begin to join your words with your heart, your mind, your physical expression unto God, something starts to happen inside you. And what we have just read is the same thing. You can rejoice your way into joy. You rejoice your way into joy. Well, I don't want to be disingenuous, Jamie. Well, you are if you don't. You are if you don't. You say, how come? Call yourself a believer? You only do what you feel? <laughs> Not you guys. That, that's another church. Okay, I've got a bit other people. I'm not talking to you guys. You're too holy. See, there's a reality. I think there's a realm in God that you can lay hold of. Not because you try hard to hold on to it, but because you said your yes to God. You did what he actually told you to do. Last week was a moment like that. And in my experience, you find yourself holding the very thing you long for, but you don't know how it happened. Do not grieve, the scripture says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. John's prophecy talked about laughing, didn't he? It would be hilarious. I can remember when the Toronto Blessing actually hit Glasgow and revival hit, you know, people would be laughing all over the place. And then some people would get really upset by this. Really upset. This isn't normal behaviour in a church. You know, what's all this laughing stuff about? Do you know, where's that in the Bible? It's all over the Bible. Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Do you think the fullness of joy might even include a giggle? Some laughing? Is it conceivable? You know, possibly? As we look at our text, the people are weeping over their sin. And we would agree that's fit and proper unless, unless, that's not what God's doing at that moment in time. Sometimes God will actually do something different. Another way, other ways than what we think he should actually do it or we think he, it should work to help you into a better lifestyle change. My counsel to you is, guys, when the Lord does stuff like that, do not resist it. Verse 11. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. I wrestled with this scripture until the penny dropped. Because it's difficult to receive an instruction to be happy in order to make sure everybody else is happy, isn't it? It's a hard thing to actually do. And then it talks about sending portions, and there's this generosity thing again. In other words, if you get plenty in your plate, then give it to others. In a me world, that is counterintuitive. So it is. When you're sad, it's counterintuitive to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. I don't know what you think about this, but this scripture grabbed me, so it did, grabbed my heart, and it changed the way I thought about my journey with the Lord. See, the word of God's read, okay, the standards up here, their lifestyles down here, and there's a mournful gap there. There's a gap that they're mourning over. And God says, guys, because you understand now the difference, it's time to rejoice. 
You're not rejoicing because you finally met the requirements. You're not rejoicing because, you know, you've came up to some kind of standard. You're rejoicing because you've suddenly got it. You understand it. Something happens to the person who rejoices in response to biblical understanding and takes them to the very place that they desire. Joy is so understated. And guys, I know some of you have got sadness today because some of us lost a dear friend this week, you know, in a different church. So there used to be a student with us and left years and years ago, but we found that they passed last night. I know the sadness here, but I want you to know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a prophetic message to you specifically if you're nurturing that, that the Lord knows more. And our dear sister's with him today. And do you know what? She wouldn't come back even if she could. She wouldn't. She's having a party just now. So she is. That's what we've got to look forward to. Joy is so understated. Perhaps it's a hangover from Protestant Reformation where our faith was reflected by somber piety. But could it be that joy is the entrance to the things of God that for so many seemed out of reach that they couldn't actually grasp? There's something about obedience of rejoicing that does such a transformational work in every one of us that we find ourselves living a life at a level we thought was just way out of our reach. Guys, I think heaven's full of joy, don't you? I think it is. Joy is such a precious, precious commodity. Do you know the scripture that blows my mind? It's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it talks about the Father who sent Jesus. And it says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy was so valuable that Jesus endured the most horrific, horrific torture imaginable to mankind because on the other side was the reward. And that reward is called joy. So when the Bible says that joy of the Lord is our strength, it's, it's not talking about a smile or talking about a giggle. It's an internal combustion. It's an internal igniting. It's an internal explosion almost of the presence and activity of God that makes everything pale by comparison. It's the reality of the Spirit of God inside of me that gives me that emotional, mental, you know, encounter with the heart and the mind of God. You know, I've heard John Wimber, I've heard uh, Bill Johnson, I've heard Smith Wiggle. Well, I didn't hear him, I read about Smith Wiggles, work, you know, uh, all talking about this rejoicing that opens a doorway to that. Something Sometimes kind of rejoicing is an act of faith, or a better way to put it, I think it's an act of surrender. I think it's an act of surrender that connects us to something of God that goes beyond our comprehension. See, joy is not just the fruit of things working well. Think about this. Joy from a kingdom mindset is the expression that causes things to work well. And whilst we're seeing, and what we're seeing in this passage are glimpses of grace that makes grace in the New Testament make more sense. If you ever struggle with these, you know, passages like 1 Thessalonians verses 5 to, you know, chapter 5, 16 to 17, where it talks about rejoicing always, pray without ceasing, and everything gives thanks. Well, it makes sense of that if you look at the way God is talking about joy here. Think about this. If those Israelites who did not have the presence of God dwelling within them could step into that reality of God, 
How much more then can those who have the Holy Spirit inside of us living today enable us to live with extreme, extraordinary joy today? The joy of the Lord being our strength is not because things always work out well. If that was so, then people could say, well, they're just good at their job, or they're really lucky, or they've got a great family life, etc., etc. And then you could trace that back to things that we can do in the natural, things that we can do in and of our own strength. No, this is something different that we're talking about here, because I've seen incredible joy in people who have experienced really, really tough, you know, times and experienced loss. It doesn't mean that, you know, doesn't mean that you've got to experience the loss and stuff like that to experience it though it just means that it stands out more in those circumstances it's almost like my brother-in-law used to be a jeweler and if you went into his shop and you were looking at something when we went to get linda's engagement ring he pulls out this kind of black cloth and so that what they do is they put the ring on it so that diamonds really pop out they stand out even more and it's a bit like that you know if you, you've experienced a loss you see the joy it stands out a lot more Linda and I are discovering that there is something about the joy of God that is not subject to our circumstances. It's not subject to the world's conditions or whether our prayers were answered or not. It lives because the Holy Spirit lives in me and His nature is the nature of joy. Rejoice greatly because they understood the words. It's that understanding of what I'm talking about that releases us. Sometimes we look at life and we think there's just some things that are insurmountable. They're just far too big, too hard for us to access. And yet, he invites us into this rapid growth process that starts because of joy. That is not accelerated by our self-determination, but it runs at a pace with joy. Do you know, I was a new Christian. I remember reading the Bible about stewardship and my finances. Brand new Christian. And I read this thing about tithing. And I thought, oh, tithe, I don't think I'll be able to do that because if I do that, I won't be able to buy the car that I want. I won't be able to go those two holidays that I want to go, you know, in a year. And if I were to give at that point, I would have given grudgingly. But then I read that giving grudgingly is not acceptable offering to the Lord. You know, that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 8, it talks about God loves a cheerful giver. Do you know, and then the penny dropped. I started to see things from God's perspective. I thought, what am I doing? What am I worrying about here? One, it's his money. It's not mine. You know, it's his money, all of it. And here I am, you know, I'm fretting about a slice of the pie when my father owns a pie factory. What's that all about? You know, I'm worrying about that. And when you start to see things from his perspective and you choose joy, do you know, it was then I found myself actually being able to do, you know, out of my nature, which seemed a struggle before, and I was able to give joyfully to the Lord. There's something that takes place in the heart of a person who yields to joy. And I want you to grasp that today, because joy is your birthright. Joy is your birthright. It was designed for you, and you were designed to experience it. A lifestyle of joy isn't living in denial when tough things are happening, though. Because pretending or denial is fruitless. But neither should I subject my whole being, my mind, my body, my emotions to the difficulties happening around me. Otherwise, what they'll end up doing is they will define you. So they will. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, etc., etc. And every other aspect of life, well, these are things that are ours because Jesus bought them with his life not because we earned them. We didn't prove ourselves good enough. And yet, 
somehow rejoicing before I earned the right to be happy, it transforms us. It transforms me into a person who becomes qualified to live in a dimension of Christ that's otherwise unattainable to us. So let me finish by saying this, guys. Joy is a gateway. It's a gateway to things of the kingdom that we haven't explored enough, and we need to look at that. And I believe that is what God wants us to understand today. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand?